The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. I know a verified story of a person who made his way together with his family from the occupied town listening to our broadcasts because we were telling where it is dangerous to go and where it is more or less safe to go. So radio actually saves lives. I probably cannot save other lives otherwise, but I can with the help of radio. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Paradox, a podcast on democracy, democratization, and world affairs. Each week, you'll learn about big-picture insights to better understand political issues and events. These are complex ideas that might even be unfamiliar, so I've provided a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com. You can also support the podcast at Patreon for as little as $5 per month. Supporters have access to bonus materials like this week's conversation with Jenna Spinelli, co-host of Democracy Works, and founder of the Democracy Group Network of Podcasts. I reached out to Jenna shortly after I started Democracy Paradox. She's always found the time to help podcasts like mine, so I'm excited to share a brief conversation with her. Democracy Works, if you don't know it already, features some incredible guests like Peter Pomerantsov and John Meacham. So listen to Democracy Works and become a patron to listen to conversations with guests like Jenna Spinelli. Now, today's guests are Marta Tashok and Andrei Kulikov. Marta is an associate professor at the Departments of History and Political Science, Western University in Canada. Andrei is the co-founder and chairperson of Hamaradsky Radio. I reached out to Marta because she wrote an article on the bravery and heroism of Ukrainian journalists during the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. A few years back, she also hosted a podcast called Ukraine Calling. Last year, she published those transcripts into a book called Ukraine Calling, a Kaleidoscope from Haramsky Radio, 2016 to 2019. Haramsky Radio is an independent radio station in Ukraine. Andrei will tell you more about its founding and purpose later on, but his experience makes this a very different conversation. He was in Ukraine as we recorded, so his perspective on events is quite different than most analysts and academics. 
We discuss topics like the role of the media, media literacy during a war, and Ukrainian identity. It's a different conversation from past episodes on this podcast, but no less important. So let me introduce you to Marta Tchok and Andriy Kulikov. Marta Tchok and Andriy Kulikov, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for having me. Yep. Well, Marta, really impressed with the podcast that you had, Ukraine Calling. I was impressed with the book, with the transcripts, and I'm impressed with the podcast as well. Andre, I am very impressed with the work that you've done at the radio station that aired the podcast that worked on this, but I want to start out a little bit more on a personal level just to begin. So, Andre, I know that you are in Ukraine right now. I just want to ask, how are you doing? Well, when you have a the audience to which you broadcast when you have a feedback from the audience and when you meet people who recognize you not by your face but by your voice this means that we are doing pretty well that's great to hear can you paint us just a small picture what is it actually like in ukraine right now what is it like where you're at Justin, uh, Ukraine is a rather big country, at least in European measurements. Basically, the spirit of resilience and the spirit of uh, fighting for independence that spreads all over Ukraine, even in the temporarily occupied areas. But the situation is different from town to town and from city to city. Until recently many people in Ukraine thought that there are so-called safe havens for our IDPs and uh, other people the recent bombing of uh, Lviv with five rockets almost simultaneously has proven again that there are no safe havens I also have some friends in much smaller towns like less than 100,000 residents they have been targeted as well but of course it's a different story if you live in Kyiv which is protected I think by one of the best air defense systems in Ukraine and probably even in Europe and the missiles are still hitting us and the bombs as well but you have a pretty good chance that they will be shot or hit by the Ukrainian air defense and then some smaller towns where you have virtually no protection unless the missile is intercepted on the way and then the russian occupiers come occupants come and then they subject people to terror so it's different as far as kiev is concerned we have air strike alarms at least twice a day it used to be much more frequent until the russians withdrew from the outskirts of kiev but anyway they are bombing and shelling and hitting the city with their missiles we have a curfew it lasts from 10 pm to 5 am it used to be from 8 pm to 7 am 
So we are sort of relieved. But we are very much troubled about the major Russian offensive that began yesterday in the east of the country, not only because it poses the threat to the country, but because hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people are being again uprooted, being again killed, and most of us cannot but think about this as well, apart from our own safety. That's life in Ukraine. And we call each other, we write emails to each other to get to know what is happening to our near deal. The day before yesterday, or was it yesterday, that Lviv was hit, I called seven people who were dear to me in this city. Some of them are from Lviv, some of them are recently internally displaced people, and I got to know about how they are. So this is the life in Ukraine at the moment. There was a guest on Ukraine Calling that was... I'm going to probably mispronounce the name, but it was Oleshi Haran. Oh, Oleksi Haran. Yeah, Professor Haran. Yes. And on the show, they said, life in Kiev looks peaceful. Some people watch this happening in a very distant region. And they were talking at the time when this was a conflict limited to the Donbass region. And listening to you talk, it makes me feel as those people in Kiev did at that time, because... Life is peaceful here for me, where I live, and I'm watching this in a distant region, but at the same time, I can't, can't stop having my heartstrings pulled by how horrific this sounds and how horrific it is when I read about it. But at the same time, it's hard to fathom what is actually happening because it's occurring so far away. Marta, I want to shift over and bring you into the conversation here. I know that you're not in Ukraine yourself, but you've got tremendous experience working with people on the show, Ukraine Calling, and you have so many close personal ties to many in Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about what initially drew you toward Ukraine and its people? I've been traveling to Ukraine for 30 years. I conduct research there every summer. The last two summers, because of COVID, I couldn't go. But I first went when I was a PhD student at Oxford to collect data for my dissertation on Ukrainian World War II refugees. And I landed in Kiev in spring of 1991. And as you know, the Soviet Union was teetering at the time. And as that was happening, I thought, I don't want to sit in the archives. I want to see history happening. So I contacted this British paper called The Guardian, said, I'm in Ukraine do you need someone? And they didn't have anybody. So they said, well, we'll try you. Because of course, a PhD student is not a journalist, but they didn't have anybody. So they hired me on a trial basis. Really nice man called John Retty. And he initially co-wrote the articles with me. I would call into Moscow, tell them what was happening, and we would write it together. But eventually, I just started writing my own pieces and was in Ukraine, when the coup happened, I was actually in Zaporizhia at the time. I was in parliament when they declared independence in 91, and then things calmed down. I went and finished my dissertation at Oxford, had it published, and continued to do research and started being interested in writing about media developments in Ukraine. So I started, I mean, I met a lot of journalists back in 91, some of whom I'm still in contact with, and have met many, many along the way. 
And then in 2013, this group of journalists created this independent radio station called Romaitsky Radio. And Andri can tell you about how they created it because he's one of them. But then I got involved with them because Irina Slavinska, she contacted me during the Revolution of Dignity and said, how does it look from Canada? And that got me started working with them. And then Andri said, can you do this in English? And I started doing some English language podcasts. And that eventually led to my own podcast, Ukraine Calling, which I did for three whole years. But let Andri tell you about how they set up Romatsky Radio, because it's a great story. Please do. So basically, it was in the spring of 2013 when I was almost simultaneously contacted by three people who worked in media and who felt that they were not able any longer to work according to what their consciousness told them. They were either silenced or made to publish something that did not match the reality. And those people could not lie, basically. So they asked me, what shall we do? And out of sheer inspiration, I told them, let's create a radio which won't take money from any of the tycoons, which won't take money from any of political parties. And my choice of radio was due to two reasons. First of all, I used to successfully work for radio, and I knew how involving this may be and how rewarding this may be. Because on radio, you get much closer to the audience than on television, on the net, or even in newspapers. You can basically talk to them, and they can talk back. Going to interrupt her. Andriy's very modest. He worked for BBC. He was one of the first Ukrainians to be hired when BBC set up a Ukrainian service. So that's where he got his radio background. Sorry, Andriy. Yeah, basically, I, I haven't worked for radio before the BBC. So I was lucky in the sense that I almost immediately got the best or one of the best jobs in radio ever. On the other hand, I knew that radio is being very much underestimated in Ukraine. Most of the money goes to television and then to the internet and radio because the rich and the powerful do not see themselves on radio. They think that they should not invest in it. Over the 30 years of independence, there were probably no more than four rather big investments in radio. So again, from my previous experience, I knew that until you are considered not influential and not very glamorous, you are sort of allowed to work freely. And it depends only on you how you use this opportunity. So this was my choice. Gradually, we were joined by a couple of dozen people, mostly from television. And then we started to make podcasts because we had no money to buy a license or even to pay for the competition to buy a license. And you could place the podcast on SoundCloud, which we did. And then the revolution of dignity started. 
And we immediately were there. And for a week or so, we worked on SoundCloud. But then on the 1st of December, when there was a huge demonstration, huge rally in Kiev from half a million to a million people, we were called by our colleagues from one of the music stations. And they said, listen, we have frequency, but we have no skills to report what is happening on the streets. You have those skills, but you don't have frequency. That's during our efforts. They risked very much. They actually got two or three warnings from the National Council for Broadcasting, which is responsible for distributing licenses and uh, overseeing whether radio and television stations are fulfilling their licenses. But they risked this. And it's called Europa Plus, Europe Plus. It's a purely entertainment music station. So we worked together. We went to the Maidan. We reported from both sides of the events. And we gradually got our audience. And suddenly I started to find out that there were people whom I met 10 years ago. And we worked together. And then we lost each other. And this is how we grew. And then after the revolution has won, we were able to obtain a frequency, first temporarily, when we went to the state broadcasting company and said, listen, your behavior during the revolution was not exactly irreproachable. And our presence on your frequency may be sort of a safeguard against some hotheads taking action against you. The then chief of broadcasts thought for a while and saw the benefit of this symbiosis. So we got this. And our friends from the music station went back to their music business. And again, we were poor. We were poor because we bought our first equipment for our own money, something like 500 hryvnia from every one of us. And this is really small money, even back in 2013. So we didn't have enough money even to rent some premises. And then there was another media organization which came to our help. Television channel called Magnolia. They let us use their premises for a year without taking a hryvnia from us. And they even let us use their kitchen and some of the cookies that they put on the table every morning. And then when the war started, and the war started back in 2014 with the Russian invasion, actually with the Russian annexation of Crimea and then invasion in the Donbass, we decided that this is where we have to broadcast. And most of our transmitters were in the east of Ukraine. We have now lost all but one out of nine, and probably we will soon lose another one, because even if the Russians don't capture Kramatorsk, then there's shelling and bombing and all this kind of stuff. So we are now broadcasting in uh, Kiev. We are available on our website. And uh, in the last months or so, some Western Ukrainian stations started to rebroadcast us.
So, Andre, Marta recently wrote a short piece for the Journal of Democracy where she wrote, information is at the center of any war. And she went on to describe the journalists during conflicts like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. She described the journalists as information warriors. Do you view yourself as an information warrior? Um, Yes, I, I think I do. But it's not my choice. Or rather, it is my choice in the circumstances that surround me. I have to be a warrior because my country is under attack. And I think I know the value of the timely and verified information. And I know that some people survived in the occupation also because they got information from us. They didn't have access to television. They didn't have access to the internet. I know a verified story that in a town occupied by the Russians, people found a uh, old radio receiver in the loft. They got it repaired and they listened to radio, including our broadcasts, basically hiding it from the Russians. I know a verified story of a person who made his way together with his family from the occupied town listening to our broadcasts because we were telling where it is dangerous to go and where it is more or less safe to go. So radio actually saves lives. I probably cannot save other lives otherwise, but I can with the help of radio. That's just remarkable to hear. Marta, you wrote the piece that I just mentioned. And what I found remarkable about it is that we talk about the current era that we live in as an information age. And we talk about the war that Russia has brought on Ukraine as a hybrid war, as a partly information war. What does it mean to engage in an information war? Well, information warfare is as old as history. So this is really nothing new. What is new is that we live in a modern telecommunications age where information travels the globe really quickly. So the spreading of lies and disinformation has been going on since wars have existed, which is forever. But the speed with which that happens, that's the difference. And also the proliferation of media outlets and different types of media means that the disinformation can be magnified and distorted. And it's very difficult to challenge the disinformation that is being spread. So my favorite example is when Russia annexed Crimea, they put out this narrative that Crimea has always been Russia, which is absolutely false because Crimea became part of Russia as a result of imperial expansion after they conquered Ukraine, then they conquered Crimea and the rest of the empire. And that didn't happen until 1783. And before that, Crimea was the homeland of the Crimean Tatars. It was the Crimean Hunnids. So after what they called the first occupation, when many of them fled, became part of the Russian empire, and then it was part of Ukraine for a long time. So this narrative that it has always been Russia is false. But it took me a minute or more to explain the history. So there's this famous phrase that a lie has circled the world while the truth is just putting on its boots. So to get that 
lie out there is fast, but to correct it is slow. And we've seen that with this entire Russian disinformation campaign against Ukraine for eight years. Some people still call it the Ukraine crisis, making it sound like Ukraine is causing a crisis. What in fact, Russia has been attacking Ukraine and continues to escalate. So that's the difference. And I am in awe of journalists in Ukraine, one of whom is speaking with us, but many others who are really risking their lives to get information, to collect information and to disseminate it both inside their country and internationally. Andre, you mentioned a story about how people's lives were saved because they were able to access a radio to be able to get information. How hard is it for people in Ukraine right now to obtain information? It's rather difficult. You have to know to whom you listen, who you watch, what you read. And of course, I think that there's a choice of sources that you may rely upon. And uh, of course, you have to know the particular sort of speak that is being used by the military, by the officials, because something that we may accept or we may perceive as a very clear statement may have different layers. For instance, the military term, our forces took this or this village or this or this city under control. Back in 2014, this was a very unfamiliar term for many, many people in Ukraine. And I, for instance, at the initial stage, I thought that this means that the Ukrainian forces are there, that the city is secured, and all this kind of stuff. But then I started to notice some discrepancies in what I understood and what was really happening. So I now know that the city or the village or this locality is under control of these or those forces means that they can actually reach it with their artillery bombardment. And this does not mean that uh, Ukrainians are there or Russians are there for that matter. If we read about if he is battle, then there's a sign of alarm in this. If we read about counterattacks, this does not mean that there is a counteroffensive. So apart from uh, having reliable information, you have to know how to work with this information. You have also taken into account different ways of counting the losses, for instance. Because every army that I know, at least, tends to count the losses of the enemy on report and their own losses on the verified report. And of course, in many cases, you cannot go and count the bodies or count the wounded. So we have to understand all this. However, I must say that. In most cases, the Ukrainian official information can be relied upon. Although when uh, you look at some of the stuff that is there on uh, Telegram channels and other social media, even if this comes from a person who is closely connected or has an official position, 
this does not necessarily mean that you can completely rely on this person. I remember one story which happened, I think, in the second week of the full-scale invasion, when the Russians captured one of the cities in the south of Ukraine. And there was a story about Ukrainians who captured the Russian armored personnel carrier and uh, waving the flag, the Ukrainian flag, they were circling the city and all this kind of stuff. And we were hasty. Of course, this was a welcome news for us. So we published it on our own telecom channel. But later it appeared that the story was a story of bravery, but not the story of the capture of the enemy. There was just one guy who jumped on the APC and waved the Ukrainian flag. So we had to correct this story on our Telegram channel and on our site. How easy it is to get information depends not only on the availability of information, but also on the media literacy and the level of your ability to work with media. Physically, this is not very hard for most of Ukraine. But when it comes to making a real sense of what you are being told, this is another question. So you told a story earlier where the ability to not just obtain a radio, but to recognize that your source of information was reliable, actually made the difference in whether or not they could survive or whether or not they wouldn't survive. I imagine that media literacy during this period is incredibly important and that many listeners, many just regular citizens are having to really increase their abilities during this period. How effective are your listeners? How effective are regular Ukrainian citizens at being able to identify that the information that they're receiving the radio broadcast that they're listening to is one that's high quality, that will provide them information that will help them determine what town to go to next or whether or not to evacuate or whatever it is that they might need to know. How effective are they at discerning from different sources of information? Regrettably, every day teaches them because on their own skin, at the price of their own life or health, they get to know what they can believe, whom they can trust. And of course, if unwillingly we lead some people into deception, then we are part of a tragedy. So we have to be very, very cautious. And of course, every story which I quoted, and I have more such stories. People spread this news. They tell each other that, listen, this radio told us so-and-so, or this website published this and this useful information. We should not underestimate the power of the word of mouth, especially now when people value each other's life. They value the integrity of the country. They value our collective resistance and collective resilience. 
So they do inform each other about trusted sources of information and, again, about those whom you cannot trust. Unfortunately, there are some sources and some speakers who create an impression that they are very reliable. I know some people whom I know quite well, and they uh, now have developed the habit to watch some people on YouTube or on Instagram who are just soothing them, calming them down. And it's a very human feature. You want to retain your calm. You want to have something that distracts you from the horrors. So they listen to those people who have told us immediately. Even in 2014, there were people who said Russian attack against Ukraine is the start of the inevitable quick end of the Russian empire. People tend to believe this. People want to believe this. So basically, every truthful report that we produce, every warning that we broadcast about danger, and every schedule of evacuation trains or so-called green corridors, or the instruction how to behave in case the chemicals are pouring from a damaged plant teaches people, including us, to be media literate. Every mistake does not only endanger their lives, but is also detrimental to our work. Marta, on Ukraine calling, Many of the guests described a warlike atmosphere between Ukraine and Russia, and this was long before the recent escalation, long before the recent invasion into other parts of Ukraine, because there was a war going on in the Donbass region. And you've mentioned that already, that the war did not begin this past year. It began all the way back in 2014. Have Ukrainians felt that they were at war with Russia before this past year? Well, no, that's an excellent question, because as you said, the, I mean, this didn't start in February. This started in February of 2014, when first Crimea got annexed, and then the supposed Novorossiya project started, which was Russia's attempt to gain control over parts of Ukraine to destabilize it. They succeeded only in capturing parts of the Donbass, although there were attempts in various other areas like Odessa and Kharkiv and Sumy. So the attack was coming. The Ukrainians managed to stem it at the time. When I started the podcast Ukraine Calling, one of the first episodes was with Professor Lixi Harany and Brian Whitmore, who's a U.S.-based Russia expert. And it was summer of 2016. And they both said that war is the new normal in Ukraine. And what that meant was that there were areas of intense fighting in the Donbass. And there were other parts of the country where you didn't actually feel the war, but it affected the entire country. Because people from Crimea and from the war zones, they became internally displaced. So they were appearing in other parts of Ukraine, and Ukrainian men and women were being conscripted to go fight in the war zone. The difference now is that it's a massive assault against the whole country. 
but what Ukraine as a whole is experiencing, the Donbass has been experiencing for eight years now. So, Andre, as I read about what's happening in Ukraine, one of the themes that I come across is this sense of renewed Ukrainian identity or this sense of, I don't want to say renewed, but just a heightened level of sense of identity of Ukrainians as to who they are as a people, a closer connection to their country. But that's what I'm reading from a distance. And I'd like to hear from your view, from somebody who's very much experiencing this firsthand, has Ukrainian identity changed during this period? Yes, we're hearing a lot about the fact that the Ukrainian identity has grown, it has intensified, and people became more united and more aware of their common destiny. I say that this is only because this is seen in a clearer way against the background of what is happening. There's also a saying that the Ukrainian political nation has formed after or as a result of the revolution of dignity. I say no. The revolution of dignity was possible because the Ukrainian political nation was there. The Orange Revolution was possible because the Ukrainian political nation was there back in 2005. And the Ukrainian independence was possible because the Ukrainian political nation, in a nascent form, was there as well. So what I say is that the circumstances and the outright aggression has just made this better seen. I do not think that the essence of our identity has changed. The form, yes, but then we need this form in order to successfully fight the aggression. That's, of course, many more of us became more outspoken because the time requires this. You can no longer be an unseen Ukrainian. You have to be a manifest Ukrainian. And this does not, by the way, require speaking Ukrainian, although I much prefer <laughs> that people around speak Ukrainian and read Ukrainian and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is that millions of uh, my compatriots prefer Russian or some other language. Yes, some of them have changed even now. I know people who have changed, uh, switched to Ukrainian in 2014. I know people who have switched to Ukrainian 55 or so days ago. And I welcome this. But then it is not a very easy process. And I have several friends among Jewish people in Ukraine. Politically, they are Ukrainians. And by the way, some of them have been speaking Ukrainian for several years now, even before the Russian aggression, even before 2014. But some of them just didn't feel that speaking Ukrainian makes them more Ukrainian than is required. So I say the essence of our identity has not changed. But we have to show the world, by the way, that Ukrainians are different. 
that Ukrainians have something that distinguishes them from Russians, because this is one of the messages of Russian propaganda. There is no such nation as Ukrainians, either ethnically or politically or in any other dimension. Listen, when they say that we are part of the quote-unquote great Russian nation, this means that every Ukrainian is endangered because every one of us is a living proof that Ukraine and Ukrainians exist. That's why they tend to kill us so easily, because they need our deaths to prove their point. If there are no living Ukrainians, then of course the Ukrainian nation does not exist. That's what they've been doing back in the 1930s, when they tried to kill the Ukrainian nation by hunger. That's what they've done to our Crimean Tatars, when they took the entire population, the entire Crimean Tatar population was taken to Asia. And that's what they are trying to do now by different means. So, identity. Who am I? I was born of Russian parents in Ukraine. My mother spoke beautiful Ukrainian, but she very rarely used it because my father did not speak Ukrainian. He understood Ukrainian, but he never made an attempt to actually speak it. He voted for independence. He voted for independence because he knew these people, these people, and he knew that Ukraine and Ukrainians exist. My brother, who is only a year and a half younger than me, he speaks Russian. 90% of his communication is Russian, whereas 90% of my communication is Ukrainian by choice. I still speak Russian to my brother. Who are we? I am a Ukrainian, and he is a Ukrainian too, although he speaks different language. It's very, very complicated, and in many aspects, I do not agree with those who say that the Ukrainian nation, especially the Ukrainian political nation, is a recent phenomenon. It is a very experienced and very hardened phenomenon just because we always had to prove that Ukraine is there and Ukrainians are there. So daily, there is a lot of reporting on Ukraine in the American press. But it's reporting for an American audience. What does the American press or the overseas press overlook in their reporting about Ukraine? I read the headlines of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I scan others as I have time. I would say that the reporting on Ukraine has improved tremendously in the last. 55 days or so. And I think that's in large part because there are now reporters on the ground. The reporting about Ukraine previously was from people who were sitting either in, you know, Washington or possibly as far as London, but very few Ukrainian voices and Ukrainian commentators were part of the story. So that has changed tremendously. What I still find 
difficult is that there's a focus on emotion. How do you feel about what's happening as opposed to what is happening and what are the implications of what will happen next? So the sort of the emotional tone in a lot of political reporting, I find that annoying because I don't see that there's much use of it unless you're doing a human interest story. The Ukrainian media professionals have worked very hard to try to get their message out to use the correct terminology. And we still hear this coming from President Zelensky's evening addresses, that this is not the Ukraine crisis. This is Russia's aggression against Ukraine. We still hear the terminology not always quite right. So that's where I think I would like to see improvement. And one last thing is very often Western journalists do not credit their Ukrainian colleagues. Somebody who lands in Ukraine doesn't speak the language, doesn't know the logistics. They hire Ukrainians to help them. And those Ukrainians very often don't get credited. And there is an example very early on in the war that an American journalist was killed and his fixer, his Ukrainian colleague was killed, but it was only the American death that was reported. And Andrew, I don't know if you remember this case, I can't remember which media outlet it was, but there was a huge uproar within Ukraine's media circles that the American death is reported, the Ukrainian death is not. So I think there's been an improvement on that. But again, sort of the Ukrainians are not treated as equals in every sense that they should be. That would be my commentary. I tend to agree with Marta Barr that I don't read as much American press as she does. But I get constant calls from Canada, the USA, and the UK. I actually think that... Most journalists and radio presenters whom I talk to are very professional in asking the questions and may make a comparison. What is life in Ukraine like and what I personally experience? Because most of the first questions that I get from the BBC or NPR or CBC or its affiliates is basically, what do you see out of your window? And this is the stuff that should be asked of me as a common person, not how do you assess the strategic situation and all this. So I think that foreign colleagues are on the right track mostly. However, Sometimes I feel that they read and watch too much of the Russian media or propaganda. On the first day of the full-scale invasion, when uh, we were made to go to the bomb shelter, there was a call from a television station in one big Asian country. I don't know how they managed to get through because this was the only call that I was able to accept. But the first question was, what are you going to do now when Kiev is overrun by the enemy on the first day? I had to explain to them that this probably was not going to be the situation. 
But from my further talks with them, it was clear that they relied basically, primarily, or at that time, even exclusively on Russian sources. That's why the question was like this. But when I, for instance, got a call from one African country, the guy who spoke to me from there, he was a newspaper reporter. It was seven or eight days into the invasion, and he was already much more well-informed. And from our talk, I got the impression that he got his information either from both sides or mostly from the Ukrainian sources and some Western reporting. And that was a totally different conversation. So, final question for you. In years from now, when future generations of Ukrainians who did not experience the Russian aggression against Ukraine look back on this time period, when they learn about this time period, how are they going to remember this era? I think this is the first time that we're living through a war in real time and everything is being documented to the point that I don't know how anyone's going to be able to go through all the data. <laughs> you know, as a historian, I'm always looking to see what sources we work with and I'm busy collecting my own sources, but there's so much, both visual and audio. So I think the question will be what filters people will be using because you can't possibly go through all the material. So it will be what questions people will be asking and what they'll choose to look at. And that will be very interesting to see what people choose to watch. And that obviously will shape the way they remember things. Because I'm right now cataloging the speeches of President Zelensky and analyzing them. But of course, there's also the foreign minister and the defense minister and all these other people who are making statements. There are tons of media reports. There's tons of Twitter feeds. There's just, there's so much information. I think the impression that I'm getting as living through it and watching it is the valor of the men and women at the front is truly amazing. Whether it's in the areas around Kyiv or, I mean, Mariupol is what's fascinating me right now. Everybody keeps thinking, oh my God, they're not going to hold out. And they keep being told to surrender. And they're like, no, and they're holding out. And that is quite phenomenal. So that's going to be, you know, a battle that will be studied forever. And I still hope that they will somehow be able to make it. Yeah, Justin, I would very much like your prediction or your suggestion to come true that we will have sort of explain or we will have to leave a message for future generations about what we experienced in this time of an outright Russian aggression. Knowing the history of relations between Russia and Ukraine and the history of relations of Russia with her neighbors, I have huge doubts about that we will have too much to explain. I would love our kids, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren to seek explanation in our time, to go to us for getting this experience. In this respect, I think I'm a realist. This is not the last attempt of Russia to crush Ukraine. 
This is not the last attempt of Russia to restore its imperial magnitude, and we need to have all the support that we need. You know, many people have said this before, but I will repeat this. When we say that we need the sky over Ukraine closed, this is because at the moment we are closing the sky or protecting the sky over the entire democratic world. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Marta, very impressed with the work that you've done. I loved reading through the transcripts. I love the podcast, Ukraine Calling. Andre, thank you so much for the work that you continue to do. And thank you so much for your thoughts. And like everyone, we offer your prayers and, and hopefully we can find ways to help you even more. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.